0: Children, whom I love in truth, not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh." Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves, so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting." For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face, so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. And I now I invite... Uh, David Updike's life uh, I seek to imitate. Um, he's a trustworthy man, a faithful preacher of the word. So um, we look forward to what God has uh, revealed to him to share with us today. Thank you, David.
1: Thank you, Stephen. Well, it is uh, really terrific to be with all of you here today. As we look at this very short letter of Second John, if you've got your Bibles, keep them open to Second John. Uh, but it's great. I think we've got it on the screen behind us as well. But even though it's a very short letter, there's a good reason why 2 John is in the Bible. It has a really vital and urgent message for all of us today. A warning not to lose what is the most valuable thing in the world. What do you think the most valuable thing in the world might be to some people? Kids might be thinking about this. What's the most valuable thing? Well, it's the reward of King Jesus himself. You can't get anything more valuable than that. The reward of King Jesus himself. The guarantee of life everlasting in all of its joy and peace and hope. Now I know that your pastor has been going through the first letter that John wrote. And in the same way, he was really, really worried about false teachers leading people astray. And so John is writing from an overflow of love to his readers, faithful Christians doing it tough. John is emotionally invested in those he's writing to. He beautifully captures the combination of truth and love. Truth and love that the gospel always holds together. Truth and love. But before we look at this very short letter, I'd like us just to spend a moment thinking a little bit about John. John was just an ordinary person like you and me. He was ordinary until he met Jesus, and Jesus made all the difference in how his life was transformed. We know of John as just a humble fisherman with his dad, with his brother James. He sounded like a fiery guy. His brothers were called the sons of thunder. He must have had a lot of passion and zeal. But when he came to know Jesus and follow Jesus, That zeal was tempered with love, which is a beautiful combination. Uh, To be zealous and loving at the same time is a wonderful, wonderful thing. We know that John was described as the beloved disciple. Uh, Along with Peter and James, he's one of the inner circle, the three closest guys that Jesus really invested in. And just think what John would have seen in those three years together with Jesus. The teaching with authority, performing miracles, healing the sick, driving out demons, confronting the Pharisees, raising the dead. John saw it all. He lived with Jesus for three years. There was no hiding Jesus' character. He is God the Son, the Son of God, the Messiah. And John had this confirmed for him when he saw Jesus glorified on that Mount of Transfiguration where Moses and Elijah appeared with Jesus. And the voice of God, the Father himself, said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Okay, so John knew that Jesus is legit, and it's really important for what we're going to look at in a moment. But can you imagine, again, it would have been a shock to John, as well as the other disciples, to see Jesus betrayed to see Jesus go through a sham of a trial. To see him beaten and scourged and mocked and spat upon. What's going on? And then to be crucified, the cruel cross for our sins. But John was there. Even on the cross, Jesus had a word for John. Can you remember that? John was there with Jesus' mum, Mary. And he said, Mother, here is your son. And John, here is your mother. What a responsibility. The son of God telling you to care for his mum, for Jesus' mum, Mary. Wow. What privilege. After Mary Magdalene reported the resurrection, John, along with Peter, was one of the first ones there. He saw the risen Jesus. He physically conquered death, as well as the devil and the world and sin. He saw the risen Jesus, and he came to understand why Jesus had to die to pay the penalty for our sins, to be the perfect sacrifice for sins once for all. Now, for many of you, this is very familiar to Christians. If you read the Gospels, this is very familiar. Why am I going over this? Because it reinforces the fact that we have an eyewitness who saw that Jesus really is the Son of God. He really is the Messiah. He really is the Christ. In the flesh, the perfect God-man, our only Redeemer and Saviour. How dare, then, that false teachers deny Jesus as the Christ? This is what was going on. How dare they? They were undermining and mocking his life of perfect obedience, who he really is. They're pouring contempt on the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus, our Lord and Saviour. You couldn't even begin to imagine a worse betrayal of the truth. So John is committed. John is invested in the truth. And because he loves Jesus, have I just lost No, Because he loves Jesus, and because he loves the people who follow Jesus, he was warning them about these false teachers. Second point I just want us to think about, we know about John's early life, know about John during the time of Jesus' ministry, have you ever wondered what John was doing after Jesus ascended to heaven? You know, we hear about James, we hear about Paul, we hear about Peter, but John doesn't seem to pop up for quite a while. What do you think John was doing? He was looking after Jesus' mum. He wasn't seeking the limelight. He would have been involved in Jerusalem, but more than likely he was living in Capernaum, ministering in the region around Capernaum, encouraging the brothers and sisters in Christ, but he took very seriously his assignment from Jesus. He loved Mary, the mother of Jesus. He cared for her. He wasn't out for the limelight to be a hero. He faithfully served. And I think that's such a great encouragement for all of us. But from church history, we know... That after this assignment was complete, whenever Mary passed away, he spent most of the rest of his life in a town called Ephesus, a city actually. A really, really rich city of Ephesus in the province of Asia. John, I had a a lovely PowerPoint and it wouldn't save to my USB, so I couldn't bring a map to show you where Ephesus was. But I think you'll have maps in the back of your Bible which are super helpful. And Ephesus pops up lots and lots in the Bible. Paul spent over two years preaching the gospel. Ephesus was really important. It was a strategic hub of ministry, just like Sandstone Community Church is a strategic hub to reach the surrounding area with the good news of Jesus. So Ephesus was in the province of Asia. We know Paul wrote to the Ephesians and a little church up the road called Colossians in Colossia. We know that the Apostle Peter wrote to Christians scattered all throughout those provinces, Asia, Pontus, Bithynia, all those places there. And then John himself wrote one John, which was probably a circular letter to the churches around Ephesus. Um, We know John also wrote Revelation, and there's seven churches specifically mentioned in Revelation 2 and 3. And these are all cities around Ephesus. Uh, you might remember, um, the, the there's Phrygia and Sardis and Pergamon and Smyrna and Philadelphia, and you know them very well. So here's Ephesus, really important city. In the midst of all their prosperity and wealth, our uh, idolatry and immorality, John was encouraging the believers to live life in community, marked by grace and purity, joy and holiness, truth and love. And so we know that there would have been a lot of opposition. The devil doesn't like the good news of Jesus. But it's one thing to have opposition outside of the church. It's another thing to have people inside the church calling themselves Christians by bringing a false message. This is what Paul faced. This is what Peter faced. This is what John faced. They were trying to combat false teachers. And the stakes couldn't be whole higher, folks. If we get Jesus and his gospel wrong, eternity is at stake. Very serious stuff. You know, in the midst of confusion, it would have a terrible effect on the culture of the church, uh, on, on relationships, you know, all the distrust and criticism and suspicion. So, that's a very long winded introduction to this very short letter. Let's get into it in verse 1. If you've got your Bibles there, 2 John, verse 1. And immediately we're struck by the humility of John. What a humble guy. He describes himself as an elder. Not only a reflection of his advancing years, but his position, his spiritual role of humble servant leadership as the overseer, the pastor, the elder of the church. We think, who is this? elect lady and her children that John's writing to. Is he referring to a specific lady uh, and her children? It could well be. Or is this a symbolic reference to a specific church and its its members, the children? We know that the church is called the Bride of Christ. Men, how do you feel about that? We are a part of the Bride of Christ. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Positionally, we are in Christ as his bride. Wonderful, wonderful. So it's very possible that for security reasons, because there's a bit of persecution going on, John is using symbolic language writing to a specific congregation, maybe one of the other places he addressed in Revelation 2 and 3. And we know, as believers, when we put our faith in the Lord Jesus, we're adopted into his family. Privilege. We get to call the God of the universe Father. And you know what that makes us? We're brothers and sisters. We're brothers and sisters in Christ who love each other as Christ does love us. I want you to count up in your head as we just go through this letter how many times the word truth or true pops up. The elders, the elect lady and her children whom I love in truth. Not only I but also all who know the truth because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Truth is the key. Truth and love always go together. If we emphasise love only, and many people are tempted to do this, the problem is it can minimise the truth. We just have this mushy form of love where anything goes and the truth might not matter so much. And that actually ends up being very unloving if we don't tell the truth about people's position before a holy God, as well as the way we can be right with God through Jesus. But on the other hand, if you swing the pendulum too far the other way, if we only emphasise truth, the problem is if we minimise love. Uh, An unloving truth can lead to a harshness that might be ugly and drives people away. So we always must keep truth and love together in the Gospel. And the truth is obvious, isn't it? The context is clear. Nothing less than the truth about Jesus. Who he is and what he's done. The truth about the gospel. Everything hinges on Jesus. Gospel doctrine, gospel culture. It all comes back to Jesus, God's son. The perfect God, man, our mediator and redeemer. So to these Christians, under pressure from worldly opposition... Under pressure from sinful temptations and false teachers, John blesses them with a beautiful greeting. Grace, mercy, and peace. Isn't that what we need? In this hectic world, in this exhausting and busy world, we all need grace. We all need mercy. We all need peace. But look where it's found from God, the Father, and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son. So right up front, I know I'm belabouring the point, but this is really important. In the very greeting of this letter in Holy Scripture, John is emphasising that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Anointed Saviour, who is the Father's Son. Jesus is the Son of God from all eternity past. He came to earth physically, physically, Fully human, fully God, and there was no other way for the perfect mediator to die for our sins than the perfect God-man, Jesus Christ, God the Son. That's whom we worship. That's who we're gathering in the name of today. Now, John's got clarity now on gospel doctrine, gospel teaching. John now fleshes this out, and this is where it's really relevant for us today as a congregation what this means for gospel culture. And we see this in the next three verses. Gospel culture is so important. And you won't be surprised to know it's based on truth and love. Now, here's a question for all of you to think about. You don't have to put up your hands. I'm a teacher during the week. But I wonder, what is it that brings you the most joy? What is it that makes you deeply joyful in your heart? Not just brief glimpses of happiness like when you're sharing a joke, but deep, abiding, unshakable joy. Have a think about that for a moment. If we really think about it, not just Christians but non-Christians, I would say that most people would say that relationships is what brings them the most joy. There might be their relationship with their family, with their friends. Some people might say purpose and fulfilment in life. It might be being content, peace and security. And people out in the world, they go and chase all these things to find peace and purpose and fulfilment and security and contentment. And there's a restlessness. They never really quite achieve what they think will bring the deepest joy. And we know, as Christians, it's only in relationship with God that we have that deep joy, no matter what our circumstances. We're not always happy all the time, but we have that deep joy, that deep contentment, that peace, that we are loved, that we are forgiven, that we have a certain hope of the resurrection from the dead, we have an eternal hope to look forward to. The anguish that so many of us around here, people who don't know Jesus, is that this world only offers fleeting glimpses of happiness. Apart from God, the soul-satisfying depths of joy always remain elusive. And we have got good news to share to people who are spiritually thirsty around us. So what is it that brings joy to John in verse 4? That the children of the elect lady, that the members of this church are walking in the truth. Walking in the truth. That's just another way of saying they're following Jesus. They're living the normal, ordinary Christian life, living in the midst of a gospel culture. So John, you can just imagine, he would have been overflowing with joy. He loves his fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. He knows that all those who've put their trust in the risen Jesus, completely forgiven, adopted into his family, they have been saved, they are being saved, they will be saved. They've entered into the covenantal relationship with God and with one another. They've become members of another kingdom, an alternate community, where their identity in Jesus Christ far supersedes every other identity marker, whether it's wealth or class or ethnicity, whatever it might be, status, all of that's secondary to what unites them in the gospel. In the same way, all of us, we are called to walk in the truth. This is what we're commanded to do. You know what Jesus said when he was asked what the greatest commandment was? He knew his Bible. He quoted from Deuteronomy 6. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. But John would have also had in mind John 13, 34 and 35, where Jesus said... On that night in the upper room, a new commandment I give to you love one another as I have loved you. How much did God love us? As I have loved you, so you must love one another. All people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So, the new community that Jesus established is marked by an extraordinary sacrificial love for one another. This is such a powerful witness to a hostile world, to an indifferent world, the love that believers have for Jesus as our saviour and the love that we have for one another as a family of God. And though love is not just a mushy feeling, although emotion is quite important, love is expressed through living according to Jesus' commands. If you think back to John chapter 14, Not once, not twice, but three times in John 14. You can look it up. Verses 15 and 21 and 23. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. We know that Jesus' commandments are not burdensome. He is gentle and lowly. He'll give us rest for our souls. What a saviour. Do we love Jesus? Do we just pay lip service to this? If we say we love Jesus, this is how we will be uh, reflected in how we love one another. We will think the best of one another. We will serve one another. We will rejoice when the other person's rejoicing. We will grieve when we suffer loss. We will practically meet one another's needs. We will care for each other. We will encourage each other. We will build each other up. What a witness to the world, this alternate community founded by Jesus. So John has clarified gospel doctrine and he's clarified gospel culture in how we love Jesus. Here's where it gets really serious, folks. How terrible to have this precious gospel threatened by the lies of false teachers. It's truly wicked and evil to rob people of everlasting life and all the blessings of the kingdom of God. We see this in verse 7 onwards. Now, I don't know about you, but there's nothing worse than a deceiver, a person who pretends to be something that they're not. This is really the case when you have someone saying they are a trustworthy Christian teacher, but in fact they're an enemy of the cross of Christ. In every age there are false teachers. This was the case that John confronted in the first century. He says that many deceivers have gone out into the world. We know that the devil is described as a father of lies. He's a destroyer. He wants to deceive people. And what characterises these deceivers according to the Bible? Well, they do not confess the coming of Jesus in the flesh. They are denying what's technically called the incarnation, God who became flesh in the person of Jesus. They are denying the deity of Jesus. They're saying it's unthinkable that God the Son would voluntarily be crucified for the punishment of our sins. What an outrageous offence against the glory of God in the gospel. Outrageous. No wonder John doesn't hesitate to call them anti-Christ. Instead of being well-meaning teachers, they are in fact anti-Christ. They are opposed to Christ. They are enemies of Christ. They are wolves in sheep's clothing. Using smooth words and persuasive arguments, they are incredibly destructive, as a ravenous wolf with a helpless sheep. Verse 7 Many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, such a one as the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves, watch out, extreme danger. The stakes are high. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for. John has given his life for the work of the gospel. but may win a full reward. High stakes possible, folks. Where are we going to spend eternity? What can we do? What can we do to ensure we win a full reward? The crown of righteousness, eternal life itself. We need to watch ourselves. We need to watch out for drifting away, being seduced by worldliness or selfishness or false teaching. We always need to keep the gospel of Jesus central. We never graduate from the gospel. We remind ourselves every day of the truth of the gospel. John goes on in verse 9. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ immediately think of John 15, remain in me and my words will remain in you. Anyone who does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. We need to just be immersing ourselves in Jesus' teaching. Whoever abides in the teaching is both the Father and the Son. Here's the key. Do not go ahead of the Gospel. Do not go ahead of the Gospel. That way, no matter what our age is, we can say with the writer of Amazing Grace, John Newton, Have you heard of Amazing Grace? Great hymn, I love it. I love hymns. On my playlist, I have the 50 greatest hymns, John. I love the old hymns because there's such great truth in them. And John Newton, a former slave trader, he was so convicted of his sin, so convicted of his sin, he wrote Amazing Grace, How Sweet This Sound. But another thing he said is this, although my memory's fading, he was a bit older, he was a pastor, uh, I remember two things very clearly One, I am a great sinner, and two, Christ is a great saviour. We would do really well to be like John Newton every day. We are a great sinner, but Christ is a great saviour. As such, John is very blunt in how to treat false teachers who deny Jesus. Verse 10, if anyone comes to you and doesn't bring this teaching, do not even receive him into your house. Do not give him even a greeting. Whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. That is strong. That is strong, but that's truth of the Bible. So, harsh, strong, but necessary words, because these false teachers were denying Jesus as God in the flesh. He finishes off, though I have much to write to you. I'd rather not use paper and ink. It was expensive to write back then. Can you imagine how much Romans would have cost to write? Worth it, though. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face-to-face so that our joy may be complete. So it's obviously an urgent situation. I'm thinking John's writing to a specific congregation. He's heard some false teachings are coming along. He's got to dash off a letter before he can get up there and visit in person. And he loves to see people in person, encourage them face to face. But true fellowship fellowship brings such joy, doesn't it? I love meeting with people, having a coffee and asking the questions of how we're going, how we can encourage each other, what we're learning in the word, how we can pray for each other. And I'd really encourage you to get into that habit with your friends regularly. But this last verse in verse 13, I think help confirms that this letter was written from a church that John is based in. The children of your elective sister greet you. Again, that symbolic code for security reasons. Well, let's tie us all together. As a congregation of uh, followers of Jesus Christ, we never graduate from the gospel. We resolutely and joyfully hold on to the truth of the gospel, that our Lord Jesus Christ, lived a perfect life of obedience as God the Son, that he died for our sins, he died for my sins, and that he physically rose again, conquering sin and death and the devil in this world. Jesus is our redeemer. Jesus is our saviour. And if we have repented of our sins, we put our trust in Jesus, we are a part of his family forever. We are part of his kingdom forever. Sorry. And this makes all the difference in how we relate to one another. Gospel doctrine based on the truth of Jesus always leads to gospel culture based on love. Love for God and love for one another. No division between truth and love. So let's love God with all of our heart. Let's love one another extravagantly. And let's love the community around us that God has called sandstone to minister to with the good news of Jesus Christ. Let's close together in prayer. Our gracious Father, we do thank you for this precious little letter that your servant John wrote almost 2,000 years ago. We thank you so much for his zeal for you and his love for you. We thank you how well he kept truth and love together. We pray that we would never graduate from the gospel, Lord, that we would keep gospel truth and teaching together with gospel love, and that this would transform this community. Father, I pray for your richest blessing upon every person here today in Sandstone Community Church, that they would overflow with your love and joy and peace and be zealous for the truth, tempered with love. We just pray that you would work through this congregation to be such a blessing to this community, that we would not just see tens or hundreds, but as Charles Wesley wrote in his hymn, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing our great Redeemer's praise. Lord, we long to see more and more men and women, children, boys and girls, one into your kingdom through the witness of the gospel. We pray that you would do this miracle because we pray it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.